0: It is, this is a big week. Um, and by big, you're referring to the number
1: of downloads we have experienced.
0: Yeah, we got a lot of, lot of new listeners. Uh, after I was on um, Dalia Lithwick's Amicus podcast, yes, yes. Uh, recorded here, right where you're sitting
1: now. Wow. So so wait a minute. So Dahlia Lithwick's show Amicus recorded an episode here at Oral Argument Headquarters? At Oral Argument Headquarters. Whoa. Yeah. No, I was not present for that. No, no, I, they needed, yeah.
0: Are, are you, are you mad? No, not mad. I'm so <laughs> glad. I'm so, uh, I'm delighted that you were able to help she her. She wants us both on, but this was, yeah. And she needed help recording it. And she said, why don't you just come on? So I did. That's great. Love it. Yeah. Um, I was at
1: the, I was at, uh, a pharmacy picking up a prescription medication for one of my dogs. Okay. At that time anything else going on in your day (laughs) (laughs) i just remember very clearly getting that text from you about the technical stuff and yeah so it's stuck in my mind they do things a little bit
0: differently and yeah Yeah.
1: but do we want to go over
0: what we had for dinner or anything
1: like that (laughs) Uh, no i would have been happy to talk about that but since you're being a a mean person no (laughs) oh it's uh yeah i am being a little bit mean you know this is uh, what we're about to hear
0: i think is kind of a depressing show but very no, interesting. I did,
1: no, it's not depressing. It's a, it's a, um, it's, it's, it's a, it's a very difficult topic.
0: Yeah. We're talking um, about the death penalty with, uh, a long time listener of the show, Josh Lee, who's an assistant public defender in Arkansas, um, all about the death penalty. We'll talk a little bit about what he does, some issues yep. with how those, uh, the, how, how the, how the death penalty actually occurs. And then we'll talk yep. a little bit about gloss up the yep. Supreme court case at the end of the last time.
1: He's, he's obviously, I mean, in addition to being, uh, you know very smart and very dedicated, and he's a very creative thinker yeah uh, very interesting uh, to talk to, but you know looking the at uh, you know justice Blackman's phrase about the machinery of death i mean it that is what it literally is i mean it's it is a system for organizing the state's extermination of individual human lives as a punishment, and so when you to look that squarely in the face mm-hmm. and really look at its details is it's sobering and it's challenging it's very difficult that's how i find it
0: yeah and and disagreements about it can be you know i think it didn't help that this is one of three huge politically fraught cases at the end of the term that just brought out some of the worst and
1: yeah the level of vituperation is really off the charts (laughs) uh and and i and it yeah. You know, it's, it causes, it. I, I just as a citizen, I'm that it concerns me because they, uh, the, it, it is a, it is a court that is a multi-member court and they do need to be able to just at a very basic level, they need to be able to conduct business in an effective way. Um, you know, we need that from them. Yeah. So they can't indulge in the kind of vituperation that makes it impossible for them to do their jobs. So least I don't, at least I don't think that's fair. Yeah. Well,
0: we'll talk. Well, you know, the listeners are here. Our conversation, right now, it was I thought it was, uh, it was a start towards more on this. I think we, we've got a lot more to, yeah. to think about and chew on. Uh, we're going to put off feedback another week. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. We promised this week, but because but,
1: well, but so next week we're going to. It's going to be you and me. Yeah. It's like a judge John Hodgman just clearing Joe, the docket. Just Joe. No, you Christian and Joe. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know what
0: I mean. Uh, the listeners want more Joe. That's that's what I get. Like, so I got this. uh, uh I did. Have, I, I did get a little feedback on Twitter as well. We, of course, you can email us at oralargumentpodcast at gmail dot com. Yes. Or oralargumentpodcast at gmail dot com. All lowercase. N- no funny business. Right. It turns out a little bit of funny business is okay, but that's for that's a deep cut. Right. Right. Um, uh, on Twitter, though, I got we just got one. I think this is yesterday from listener Michelle on oh. on Twitter who just said, ahem, you know, A-H-E-M, and then and then gives us a link to a New York Post article all about a fine which was assessed due to some um, knee-defender-type issues on an international flight. Whoa! Yeah, another deep cut. Oh, we haven't talked about this in
1: a long time. We about knee-defender in a long no, time. No, these are
0: air, airline passengers fighting the over the days frivolity and,
1: you know, devil-may-care <laughs> knee-defender chicanery. Right, we're,
0: you know talking about coasts and yeah and yeah it, all the heavy heavy theory of the law brought to bear uh, on people arguing over the same bit of airspace within the cabin of an airplane our youth um so i think i'll link that one up in the show notes as well we got um speaking of funny and frivolity uh listener thomas tweeted out um it, it, it let everybody know on his Twitter stream that we were one of his favorite legal podcasts. Cool. He said very informative and also surprisingly funny. <laughs> this is all about the baseline, right? Yeah. <laughs> you know, what's the expectation? So we, I told him, I said, if we ever fully unleashed Joe Miller, oh, there'd be no stopping this thing. I mean, it would be like you know. Should we even tell the Should we even tell the listeners about this idea that I had this week about a series of YouTube
1: videos? You can tell them. I honestly, I don't quite. See, see it, but you. So in your, your imagination—it's something interesting. Yeah.
0: So the listeners only get kind of the expurgated version. of High, uh, Well,
1: that's absolutely true. <laughs> it is highly expurgated uh,
0: because I can wind Joe up. I, I, yeah. You know, uh, this is a this is a great sport too. But you can find you get an issue that he you know just needle him a little bit and and then just turn on the tape recorder or turn on the <laughs> video camera, let him go. I think a series of like five minutes at a shot. Uh, YouTube videos of Joe Miller rants. Thirty would seconds. I think it'll take over the world. Thirty seconds tops. Uh, <laughs> it doesn't take me five minutes. <laughs> I, the question is: Should there be the laugh track of all of the people who are behind the camera? <laughs> <watching>? <laughs> Absolutely. I Thirty seconds is that's not even enough to get through one twentieth no, of you, your of your library of curse words no, and but variations.
1: <laughs> but you're saying that you you hit record after you have uh, after you've poked the bear. Uh, hard enough to get a response right you you just want to catch the claw swinging through the air (laughs) right and that's that's only takes about half a minute yeah yeah well that that could be so I I, there's more possibility here
0: and I have to warn the listener this is not a particularly funny episode it's not this one's not Uh, but but I really as I said sobering so we'll you know we'll try to make it up to you next week Um, and you know because a good balance right a balance among the run of the show among this among the episodes exactly uh, we, we also got a, a tweet from listener Caitlin who said that, um, she was listening to our show on the way back from Hull law school's conference on custom mm. is over in on the other side of the pond. We have a good bit of, uh, a good number of listeners over there and she used a hashtag. Do you know what this hashtag was? I don't,
1: what is the hashtag?
0: Don't call me reek.
1: <laughs> <laughs> do you
0: I do remember that. I had to say that. <laughs> I don't remember how I started calling you Reek, but yeah, I don't but either. You but... said don't call me Reek, and I said that was the worst follow up to call me Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> it's the, if there's an opposite of a song of the summer, it would be don't call I me. I don't Reek.
1: remember how you started calling me Reek. I was just traumatized by it, and so I just had to tell you not to. Um, yeah, that that was.
0: I think that was at the beginning of our episode last time with Kareem Creighton. Mm. Yeah, uh, that, that's all that we got on Twitter. So you can tweet us we're Oral Argument on, on Twitter. You can get to us by email. Um, you can. You know, uh, I think eventually get on the show (laughs) like Josh, like Josh, we have the, we have the most awesome listeners who are doing all kinds of cool things. I mean, they're law students, people who are not, who are just, who do completely different things other than the law, but get into the show because they find, Hey, you know, like, like I always say, any, any reasonably intelligent person can follow what we do in law. So long as we kind of translate the jargon a little bit, yeah, um, it a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. Demystification. That's what we do. Right.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Law is just the technology of social life, so
0: Boom. There you pe- go.
1: People live life and therefore are every day bound up with what the law does.
0: Yeah. And with no further ado, let's talk about executions. Mm. Yeah. Bummer. Uh okay, well here's
1: here's Josh. Let's get going. Hello. Ah, listener Josh. Thanks for joining us, Josh.
2: Oh, thanks for having me. Uh I really appreciate it. Uh, so is this, is this the part of the show where you tell me we haven't started recording yet, but then I hear it on Monday?
1: Yes, <laughs> precisely right. We know you are a, a loyal listener because <laughs> you, you just sliced right through Christian's BS. <laughs>
2: so, Long-time uh,
0: listener, first-time hot-seater. That's right.
2: Exactly. It's like, um, uh, it, it's like, it's like being on The Price is Right. Uh, you know, you're, a, you're a contestant, and then you come on down.
0: Right. <laughs> let that let this be a lesson to all our listeners. <laughs> uh, uh, what, what, a, what a treat, though. I mean, this is, I think this is really cool. Like, I don't, we would not have met you other than – I mean, maybe, but probably not other than through this uh, – through our little show here.
2: Yeah, probably not.
0: So here's one thing, okay? So I'm kind of hesitating. Oh, okay. Uh, listener Barbara. Okay. You're familiar with Listener Barbara, Joe? I am. I am. Yeah. Yep. Um, long-time listeners may be able to put two and two together there. Let's just say that she is – a fan of the show for reasons that go i don't know beyond fandom and toward blood. Right. Would you, would you say that? Yeah, she would like it if you made a crummy ashtray. She would say that she liked it. Listener Barbara tells me um that you know she doesn't want to interfere too much. Okay. You know, she doesn't want uh, you know your show is wonderful. I don't want to I don't want to steer you astray. Of course that's what she says, right? And uh but sometimes when she's driving in the car and we have a guest on our habit of not doing any introductions at all. Um, is problematic for her. Hmm. And I say, what? What? What do you think? I told
1: her when she said this. Uh, I can't begin to guess. <laughs>
2: I also like to hear who the guest is.
1: The, it's in the show notes.
2: Yeah, nobody ever reads those though. Oh, I hate to say, I hate to say that.
0: Josh, do not tell me this because this takes I, a lot now, of my time.
2: I did. I did read them um, when uh, my articles run in the show notes. <laughs> <laughs> See, so,
0: so don't tell me they have no value. Um, they,
2: well, they, they do. They, they, uh, they, they, they really stroked my ego that one time that I looked at them.
0: <laughs> well, I mean, the other thing they do is you know it kind of creates a record of the show. So if you search on the web, you might find the show because of things that that's true, we yeah. Link and 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 two for a for a law student or a new prof who's interested in a particular area. I think they could do worse than to listen to the show. You know, whether it's about robotics and the show with Ryan Kahlo or some other sh- – I mean, like and, – and you have, like, a ready-made list of links just to get yeah. started in areas. You so. do
1: really great show notes. Thank you, And you're entirely responsible for them, and they're awesome. Uh, well, uh, thank you, even though no one reads them.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I did read them once. Yeah, <laughs>
1: uh,
0: so, listener Barbara would like us to to introduce our, our guests, maybe a little bit more. And I promised her I – said, I said, you know what? You're right. At the beginning of each show, I'm going to read the entire CV. Don't do that. And – uh um, well, you know, I want to give the listeners what they want. This is Josh Lee, yes, uh, longtime listener, first time guest, yes, uh, who is a federal public. Uh, are you an assistant feb- federal public defender, Josh?
2: Right, an mm-hmm. AFPD is AF- what we what we call it in the biz.
1: Okay, yeah, and we, uh, in the Eastern District of Arkansas.
2: Right, so I, I'm I'm in the Eastern District of Arkansas. Um, I'm based out of Little Rock and um the uh the Federal Public Defender for the Eastern District of Arkansas has a capital habeas unit and we're um we've got four lawyers um we're basically charged with representing everybody who has been sentenced to death and had their sentences of death upheld through the state courts in 2254 proceedings that's like the federal the you know they're Federal habeas proceedings, which are the last shot that they get um, to overturn their conviction or sentence.
0: Yeah, and we, we've been through this before on the show, but um, for, for like non-law listeners, you know, you, you you're convicted at trial. You can appeal that to the state intermediate appellate court if there is one then the state Supreme Court. And then if you have federal issues, you can petition for certiorari, which is to try to take an appeal to the Supreme Court, which may or may not take the case. Probably not. Uh, and after that, the conviction is final, and at that point, you may still be able to kind of appeal again through a weird mechanism, right? Uh, well, I say weird mechanism. It's, that's a dumb way of saying it, right? Because oh, it is. It, 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 <laughs> is, it
2: is weird. It, it, it is weird because it's it's an exception to um, you know race judicata and Rooker Feldman and all of these other doctrines. That apply in other areas of the civil law. It's weird because uh, federal habeas corpus is a civil action and it's a civil action that uh, in in certain respects, but not because of the anti-terrorism and uh, effective death penalty act, not in all respects. Um, somewhat exempt from the usual rules of, um, of race judicata and Rooker Feldman and the like.
0: The, these are all doctrines of finality, which prevent you from kind of questioning something again. You know, once we've decided something, we're done. And there are various doctrines that, that apply to that. And, and these, the habeas proceedings, and there can, you can have state habeas and federal habeas, but both of these are ways of kind of going to a court and suing to say that you were being held wrongfully.
1: Right. And it, so it's prisoners who obviously would
0: want to do this because they're the ones being held. Most often. I mean, the Guantanamo prisoners as well. I mean, right. so it's not always uh, criminal defendants in the usual way. True. But it's anybody who's being held or under some kind of uh, detention or custody. Um, now,
1: starting back at the federal trial court, when you and I talked uh, – uh, with a few different people about the fact that uh, state courts aren't bound to follow regional circuit precedent on questions of federal constitutional law. Um, One of the ideas that was mentioned was this notion of going from the, the state courts to district court. And then from there up, and this in habeas is what actually is done, right? So you, you take your state court judgment um, of uh, death sentence. And then you go to a federal district, as I understand it, uh, you but, know, there's, but there's it, but.
3: a problem.
2: There, there's a problem. Um, and that problem is, um, a, uh, statute passed by, um, Congress in 1996 and signed by president Clinton called, um, the anti-terrorism and effective death penalty act. So, um, and what that basically does is, um, It requires federal habeas courts. Um, In recent cases, the Supreme Court has said to defer to um, reasonable interpretations of clearly established federal law. So we've got several issues in Arkansas, and, and I'll just I'll list one, for example, where there is an intrastate split between the eighth circuit and the Arkansas Supreme court that has remained unresolved for decades because the Arkansas Supreme court has one interpretation. The eighth circuit has another interpretation. And because it's only a review for reasonableness,
3: Mm. uh,
2: the, the, the split goes unresolved in this particular case. It's, um, there's a, you know, the Sixth Amendment provides you a right to effective assistance of counsel and the 14th Amendment provides you a right to due process. And in this case called Ake, the Supreme Court said that under certain circumstances, um, you also have a, a constitutional right to access a mental health expert to assist in your defense. The Arkansas Supreme Court says um it's sufficient if uh, to satisfy ache if uh, we just send you to the state hospital and have you examined by a neutral examiner. That we don't have to, you know, give you money to go hire your own expert. The Eighth Circuit, on the other hand, says, you know, the the expert's supposed to be a member of the defense team, particularly in a capital case, um, and so the state has got to give you money. The state of the federal government has got to give you money. To hire your own, but because of this horrific anti-terrorism and effective death penalty act, the Eighth Circuit has uh, has never, you know, overruled or abrogated the Arkansas Supreme Court's case law on this point.
1: Now, in terms of consulting this mental health expert, what are the reasons why people want to do that? Is that uh, to support uh, evidence about mitigation when it comes to the sentencing phase, or
2: mental health work is a huge part of what we do. Um, and it is relevant um, and and critical um, for multiple reasons at every stage of a case. So um, the first thing you've got to do, particularly in a capital case, is determine whether your client is competent to stand trial. And uh, you can't do that by yourself um, because both the legal and the medical authorities hold that uh, you can have a severe mental illness that's not apparent to a layperson. Mm. So the so the standard of care um, and the, the the standard of care for capital defense lawyers is um, is established by uh, the American Bar Association guidelines from 2003, um, and they say that as a part of every capital trial defense team, um, you uh, you as soon as you know as soon as the guy is indicted, guy or girl, usually guy. Um, you've got to get a mitigation specialist as a part of the team. And that mitigation specialist has to have the capabilities to screen for mental illnesses and cognitive disorders. Um, And so, you know, we we, so uh, to kind of make a really long story short. You um, uh, you need them to decide uh, to argue that your client's incompetent to stand trial, to argue that your client may have been insane at the time of the offense, to argue that your client um, uh, uh, lacked the capacity to form the guilty mental state that you've got to have um, for commission of the highest level of murder. Um, to show that your client is not competent to waive appeals, which is a big problem in our capital punishment system. Um, and then also, um, to, uh, we use it in our office for all of those reasons and, and for mitigation purposes. So, you know, uh, to show that even if he's competent to stand trial, even if he's, um, not insane, uh, He's got uh, his, his mental condition is sufficiently mitigating that he doesn't warrant the death penalty. Now, when it gets to my office, remember that the trial will have already happened. And so most of the time um, we're litigating these mental health issues, which are really complicated, um, through sort of the prism of ineffective assistance of counsel.
1: Hmm. Uh, why is it what you, you mentioned this issue of waiving appeals and then you've, you sort of flagged it as a big issue. What were you what what, what did you mean? Um,
2: I, I can't rattle off the statistics off the top of my head, but I think that it's something between seven to 11 percent of all executions occur. Not because the courts have found that the trial was fair, but because the person on death row um, uh, drops their appeals. And uh, it's, it's very prevalent. And the reason it's very prevalent um, is that all of my clients are in solitary confinement, um, you know, and the, and the conditions are crushing. So you, you take somebody who already uh, probably almost all of my clients have some form of mental illness. You take somebody who's already mentally ill. And you stick them in solitary confinement for a decade and they're just so tormented that, you know, they say, uh, you know, I, I'm I may not be guilty or I may not have received a fair trial, but I, I can't um, I, I can't take um, the, t- the next 10 years that it's going to take to vindicate that position living in these conditions, which um conditions which the european commission on human rights has said amount to torture
1: why is it so routine to keep um uh, i mean this may sound like an incredibly foolish question but i just don't understand why as a matter of course you would say that anyone who's been condemned to death uh has to be kept alone is it the, th- is the theory that they'll just start killing people because they've been condemned to death already? I just kind of don't get it.
2: So I think it's irrational. I'll, I'll give you their theory, which I don't agree with. Um, their theory is basically you've already been sentenced to the maximum punishment. We're trying to execute you as quickly as possible, and so we've got nothing on you. You can stab people. You can, you know... Uh, you you can stab people, you can shank guards, you can do all of that type of stuff and there's nothing that we can do to deter you that that's wrong for several reasons the first of which is uh that they they there are lots of means within the prison to discipline inmates who have been sentenced to death so um uh, my clients when they um uh, uh, when they have no disciplinary infractions. So when they're behaving as a model prisoner, right, they get, um, very important perks like, um, contact visits. So if, if, if I come to visit a client, if he's had a recent disciplinary infraction, I can only talk to him behind glass.
0: Can I stop you? Cause I got a couple of questions about that. Cause I, one of the things I wanted to ask you about was just in, in your role, uh, given that you're doing habeas, uh, do you have a lot of client contact and, and, and what is that? I'd, I'd like to know what that is like for you and whether it, um, whether it's uh, judging from your kind of resume, it doesn't seem like it's necessarily changed your political outlook on things, but has it changed your perception of the process? And, and secondly, um, How, how are, what kind of disciplinary infractions can you commit in solitary? What kinds of things are, yeah, those are very different questions. I apologize, but I'm curious about both.
2: I mentioned one kind of thing that they've got, uh, to deter with. And, uh, you know, the, the other thing is that if they do misbehave in solitary confinement, um, that can be a reason to deny clemency. Um, so, you know, the last stage of the game is, is that we ask for clemency and clemency, you know, clemency has been, we've had a lot of success with clemency nationwide.
0: Typically, this is uh clemency from either the state's chief executive, the governor, or from some board, which is established to do the same thing, right?
2: Exactly. Exactly. So, you know, it, it is, it's, it's, cr- it's critical. You know, I always tell my clients that like, it's absolutely essential to, uh, to like follow all the arbitrary and we'll get to those in just a second, all of the arbitrary um, prison rules because um, if you don't, I'm not going to be able to uh, have like face-to-face contact with you and they're going to use it against you in your clemency proceedings and the fact that you, um, you know, the fact that you grew your beard um, uh, one, uh, one quarter of an inch too long is going to be the reason they deny clemency and execute you. So some 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 of the disciplinary infractions that my guys wow. get on, um, on death row, the prison. Uh, th- th- so they're in a, you know they're in a supermax uh, prison um, in solitary confinement, and they are fed on um, schedules that um, accommodate the prison's institutional schedule and the corrections officer schedules and not the inmate schedules. So they serve breakfast at 2 a.m. or 3 a.m.
3: Uh, what? First, yeah, right.
2: that's right. And then furthermore, they have to do count throughout the night. So um, the, the, the upshot of all of that is uh, that they have these bright lights in their solitary cells that they can't control when they come on and off. They come on during the night um, uh, when the guards are either feeding or doing the count. And so it really prevents you from sleeping. So the most common disciplinary infraction that you know, goes on their permanent record and prevents me from having contact visits with them is that they um, use uh, some cardboard or poster to cover up the light at night so they can sleep. And Well, wow, you
0: know, I've never I have never heard about this before.
3: I mean they
2: discipline them for that because they say that um if you cover up this bright light that we're shining into your eyes at two in the morning so you can sleep, um it's um m- a slightly more likely that you you may be doing something you're not supposed to that we may miss, um, or that like you may have found a way to Escape a supermax facility with ten locked doors and a twelve-foot razor wire fence.
0: So, let me uh, two two questions on that, and maybe we'll go back to the other question I asked you about because this is a, it's fascinating to me. I've never heard about this. Uh, uh, what is there a policy about hours of uninterrupted darkness for sleep, and uh, you know, and uh, kind of uninterrupted, kind of non-bothering time? Uh, Has anyone ever challenged that as a conditions of confinement claim on on habeas?
2: I'm not aware of of any protections whatsoever that they have about how much uh, darkness um, that they're allowed, uh, that that they are um, required to have for sleep. Now, there may be like a um, some sort of best practices, um, correctional uh, private organization that says that they should. But um, I'm not aware that uh, Arkansas, the Arkansas Department of Corrections, has anything like that, and I know that they don't follow it.
0: Yeah, what, what my, is typical in your experience?
2: In my experience, my clients uh, uh, tell me, um, and my clients tell me, and the Department of Correction has never denied um, that their lights are on half the night every night.
0: So, so they never get more than. Four hours at a stretch or something like that,
2: oh that interrupted sleep, yeah, that's right, that's right
0: that's got to drive you crazy
2: now the second, I mean, the second liter- question.
0: literally right I, I, well, let me ask you just one more thing uh, on the kind of the flip side of that. Has anyone in Arkansas ever escaped from one of these facilities in, in 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 death row conditions, meaning the solitary
2: um never, never escaped from the supermax prison no, no one's ever escaped I don't see how i mean it, it would it, it would have to be a plot, you know, a plot that wouldn't uh, that would not pass muster as a Hollywood script for somebody to escape. From
1: that. You'd have to be so you'd have to have so many people cooperating with you from sort of beginning to end.
2: Right. It's like why the, this it's, it's like this whole theory of um, of why we don't have coups um, in countries anymore, because like. In order to have a conspiracy large enough to have a coup, like uh, somebody, somebody would end up defecting, right? So it's, it, it 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 really is impossible.
1: But what does the keeping the lights on have to do with escaping anyway? I don't. How do we make that connection?
2: Well, they're, because they're they're making the count to make sure you're still in your cell.
1: But and why do the lights need to be on for for them to see that you're there?
2: Because they don't want to shine their, they don't want to shine their flashlight through the window,
1: or
0: to use the, or to use the thermal imagers that the police before that Kylo case a long time said was so necessary to see through walls. You remember that case a long time ago? Yeah, uh, it wasn't that. I mean,
1: maybe ten years ago. Yeah, but, but then, you know, that's, um, let's face it. We're yeah, all in, that's I just, ancient I don't now, understand What's, I, I guess I just don't understand the setup. Are they in a, are they in a room that has bars through which you can see them?
2: No. Um, uh, so that, what that what they're in is, uh, the, the door is a solid metal door, um, with, with a window. So it's got like, you know, a shadow resistant window. And then there's this sort of mail slot thing that they call a bean flap, um, that they can that they can, that they use to put their food in. So they get their food through this bean flap. There's a solid metal door at the cell. And, uh, uh, and then there's a shatterproof window there. Now, what they could do for count is, uh, I, I think that they could see them without any light based on the ambient light from the hall, right? But if they couldn't do that, They've all got flashlights and they could shine their flashlights in the cell. But for whatever reason, and, you know, my clients think, well, back up. Some of my clients think that it's for malicious reasons, um, that they don't do that and that they turn the cell lights on instead.
0: Yeah. How much, you know, given everything that prisons spent, how much would like a little thermal imager cost, which shines no light, but you'd, you'd see them in there.
2: That, but that, but i don't they don't care anything about
0: that well that would that that would put that to the test though right yeah, yeah yeah
1: well i would actually i would flip it on I would flip that on its head, which is to say they're spending a lot to keep those lights on right it's actually cheaper not to have them on you're burning energy
0: yeah you know it's, it's not cheap how, how many people- well how many people are on death row in in arkansas Josh do you know
2: uh it it varies right now it's about thirty five there there were up to 42, then that's been reduced to about 35 or 37. Um, and the reason it's been reduced is because those seven or eight guys have gotten relief in some form or another. Um, now, one, one interesting thing in Arkansas that goes against uh, the national trend um, is that we've had three people sent to death row uh, since January 1st of this year. But there has not been an execution in Arkansas since November of
0: two thousand
2: and five. Huh. So we've been almost almost ten years with no executions. Um, uh, almost ten years with no executions, and believe me, it's not because they haven't tried. We've had um, that um, since um, uh, well, uh, since my boss got here. Um, in, in August of 2006, we faced 13 execution dates, like serious execution dates. These guys are out of federal habeas. Their petition to the U.S. Supreme Court has been denied. All they've got left is clemency or whatever crazy stuff we can throw together. We've had 13 execution dates since my boss and I both joined the office on the same day. Um, and, and all 13 of those have been stayed.
0: And, and have these gotten so far down the road that the prisoner is in a, you know, taken to the chamber? I don't know what they have in Arkansas. Uh, or I guess there's also like a in most states, like a, a separate room that they stay in for their last day or two. In yeah.
2: Arkansas, they call it the death house. Um, there was there was at least one case that I know that that happened in, and this was maybe um, maybe around 2011, um, a man named Don Davis had been uh, scheduled to be executed. Um, and uh, we were working with co-counsel in that case. Um, and, you know, my office and co-counsel got him a stay in federal court. And so his execution was stayed. Um, but then the, the Eighth Circuit, uh, as it is wont to do, uh, lifted the stay on the day before the execution. Um, and in response, we uh, rammed something in the Arkansas Supreme Court, and three hours before the guy was to be executed, uh, his execution was stayed, and he's, he's still alive.
0: I do want to get to gloss up, which is what Josh has written about, and and I want to. This is the the most recent uh, death penalty case uh, about uh, whether the um, execution drugs that uh, Oklahoma, right, yep. uses are, are are constitutional, and and then it, it was the occasion for uh, a Breyer and Ginsburg dissent suggesting that. They, Death penalties per se unconstitutional, um, but before we do that, I do want to ask in your kind of personal experience, what is it like to so do you meet these clients often? What is it like when you do meet them? And then, you, I imagine they're not you know uh, they're not all the same, right? I mean, I imagine some of them are quite mentally far gone, others are not. Some of the some of them are probably more more sympathetic than others. Uh, right. Yeah.
2: So um, the, the American Bar Association guidelines that I referenced earlier say that uh, you've got to maintain close contact with your client for, you know, a lot of reasons. So I, um, I talk to my clients um, on the phone, uh, probably, uh, uh, probably each client around once a week. Um, I, I go to visit them um, at the prison. Um, some clients uh, who need more management um, every month, and then other clients every 3 months um and the la- you know the last thing i want to say about this before we try to get a little bit more meta um, <clears throat> is uh that uh seeing my clients is the scariest part of my job for a very counterintuitive reason and that is you know when i when i first took this job i was nervous about um you know meeting someone who uh was alleged to have done, you know, these horrible things. But uh, then when you meet them, they're not the monsters that you assume. They're just people. And to me, that is really scary because it's the whole there but for the grace of God go I phenomenon. And that's really informed, um, you know, I, I, I'm a... um, uh, um I'm very attracted to um, determinism as, you know, as one of my articles, um, you know, as one of my articles writes about. And, and, and I look at um, at determinism as um, framing a lot of the work that I do. Um, and I didn't come to this belief in determinism on philosophical grounds like before I took this job. I came to it through this like on the ground work of investigating the histories of these men and, you know, explaining, uh, trying to explain why this happened. Um, You know, the way I view uh, every death penalty case is is it's a battle between two narratives. Uh, The prosecution's narrative is always. This guy just woke up one day and decided he wanted to be evil. Could have been a doctor, could have been a lawyer. (laughs) But instead, he just decided for no reason just to be evil. And um, my job in every case, um, if I cannot show that they've got the wrong guy, is to show, no, this crime happened through reasons that are that were outside of my client's control because of uh, you know mental illness. Usually, it's because of mental illness, uh, cognitive disorders, things like that.
0: Yeah, I mean, control is a complicated concept, and I know we'll have listeners who kind of react against what you what you just said. And I want to come back to that as maybe a philosophical matter in in a little bit. But yeah, I, I am I, I find it interesting. I mean, when you actually. This is, we've talked about this on the show before. The difference between having a kind of an abstract view about what consequences should follow certain actions, like you know, if you if you describe some kind of criminal enterprise in the abstract and you ask what should happen, people are probably more, far more prone to be, uh, harsh than, than if they actually have to see the person, you know, as a person. And these are all people, uh, all, many of them, you know, uh, and one of the problems we'll get to is that there are some factually innocent people in the mix there, but, uh, but many of these people have committed monstrous acts, right? And what you're saying is that you meet them and you realize that you don't have to be a monster to have committed a monstrous act, right? That these are separate things. Uh, and, and that the reasons for monstrous action can be can be complicated and um, and 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 somehow, you know, that, that notion of control is important, I, whereas I see, you know, when we move to talking about gloss up as a as a decision. And I think this runs through many areas of jurisprudence when I look at the so-called liberal conservative divide on the court. Um, I, you know, there are a few justices who I think it's very important for them in many cases to make a moral judgment about who the good guys and bad guys are. And if you're a bad guy, you just don't deserve much, right? And because it's always possible to find your own narratives in the Constitution for a bunch of reasons, that kind of moral condemnatory narrative is there. Whereas good guys deserve lots of protections, right? Bad guys don't. And certainly, Glossop for me is like one of the... Exclamation points on that! Uh, at least uh, Scalia's concurrence and little hints of it in Alito's opinion, or, or exclamation points on that uh, on that point.
2: Right I, I i i totally I totally agree with you, and I think that that is um, that uh, that the uh, the Alitos of the world are just are just wrong about this. In that there are monstrous and evil acts, but there
3: are no monsters. There are just people what do you think joe um uh,
1: yeah that sounds that sounds right in in the main um i I think there are some historical uh examples that by their extremism uh suggest that but that isn't the whole picture uh and 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 maybe those examples those anomalies um make it harder for some people to accept uh what I think is right in the in the in the picture that that Josh just painted. I mean, I do think that there were um you know, there were a number of officials just to take an example of 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 if you commit monstrous acts with enough frequency over enough time, I think maybe you can become monstrous. And so um, the administrative the, the senior official administrative apparatus of the extermination of millions of p- human beings right? Uh, in the second world war I, I, I think we've gotten to the point for those senior officials where we cross the line between boy um, you seem to do a lot of monstrous acts Um <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, well
3: these, these
2: these are not my cl- such are not my clients.
1: Uh, uh, agreed, agreed. Well, I mean but, um, but, 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 but your
0: clients are among the uh, uh, you know, not not necessarily among your clients, but you know, part of the Thomas uh concurrence in in glossop is to go over in brief detail and maybe at some risk, you know, see uh, Scalia back when he use the example of someone who was factually innocent to defend the death penalty many years ago. That was the, what's the name of that McCollum case where, um, but, uh, uh, these are truly like awful, awful things that you can't imagine a normal person doing. And part of the, part of emphasizing how, just how monstrous a particular act was is to suggest to the, to the reader, to the listener, to the person who's experiencing the recounting of the facts that these are so awful, that no, no, no nothing but a monster could have
1: done this because it's just yes. inconceivable uh right. that, that you could and it's like the old there. it's like the old new yorker cover i mean uh, fine um you know if i'm if i'm uh, vi- you know in the metaphor if i'm standing on the east coast right eichmann may be on the moon but this murderer in front of me is in california um they're still both super 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 far away um, and and I might lose the the fact that they're right. not close to each other, right. um, but they're both really far from me as a, a member of the jury. So I, I think you can, you know, um, that's that's the leverage I think the prosecutor has on his or her side,
2: and and, and that's sort of the 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 whole theory of um, capital offense work at sentencing. So there's you know there, there there's this whole innocence problem that um, a, a really serious innocence problem that that Justice Breyer talks about that you know we're probably not going to have time to get to today but when it comes just to like you know let's assume for the sake of argument that the client has committed a horrible offense right. um, in, in that situation the whole function of uh of the capital defense team is to uh is is to show either one of two things the first thing um that we want to show is that uh OK, this may be a monstrous act, but this is not a monster. And there were situational factors that, you know, had, he had untreated. Was that was that Darcy agreeing with me?
3: Indeed. <laughs> it was. Indeed, yeah.
2: OK, well, thank you, Darcy. I'm glad I have got some support on the panel. Um, <laughs> uh, OK, uh, so to, to show that because of untreated mental illness that can be treated um, because of, uh, you know, coercion from a brother. Um, because of, uh, you know, absolute, uh, poverty or, you know, any other number of reasons that this is not a monstrous person. It's a person who, who committed a monstrous act. And then, you know, then there's this whole, um, uh, uh, well, the, and then the second thing is if we can't persuade the jury of that, then we have to persuade the jury that it's not his fault, that Uh, The reason that he's a monster is um, that he was uh, cursed in the genetic lottery um, with bipolar disorder, that he was cursed with um, parents who routinely, physically and sexually abused him, Um, and that he was cursed because uh, we don't have the social supports in this society to treat somebody like him. And so he was forced to self-medicate and all of these factors culminated not only in the offense but in the person he is today. But then there's another thing I want to uh, that I'd kind of like to jump in with and um you know I, I question what it even means to say um that this person is a monster. There's been a lot of uh social uh social science research that shows that um that the people who commit um crimes and violent crimes in particular are people from 16 to 35 and that somebody who's somebody who's 45 and 55 is not the same person as the person who committed the horrible offense at age 19
0: yeah i mean it's a little bit i mean I- when, when I hear people make it kind of as, make an, kind of an essentialist definition of someone, like this person is a monster, I, I take that to mean, and, I, and this isn't, you know, there are multiple ways of seeing this. One is that this is a comment about, you know, the person believes in something like a soul and they believe that the person has a, a devilish soul, right? Uh, and that will persist. But another way of looking at it is that to say someone is a monster is to say nothing more than that they have, uh, for whatever reason, uh, a propensity as best we can tell, to commit future monstrous acts
2: so so this all goes back to the mitigation the, the mitigation function in capital cases, and that it and, and uh, that is you know if we, um, if we can't convince the jury that he's not a monster and um, we we can't convince the jury that he's not likely to reoffend, we have to show the jury that it's not his fault that he uh it's not his fault that he became a monster uh he became a monster because he lost the nature and nurture lottery, and that that life imprisonment without parole is sufficient uh to protect society from future crimes i mean how how is he gonna um how is how is the monster gonna hurt anyone um, behind steel doors twenty four hours a day
1: how often are juries asked to uh, return a sentence of death, but instead decide not to?
2: Um, Fifteen years ago, not that often. Now, very frequently.
1: So it's actually just statistically speaking, it's it's uh, difficult to convince a jury to return a sentence of death. The
2: only reason it's now difficult to convince a jury to return a sentence of death is because the standard of practice of capital defense lawyers exercising the mitigation function has improved somewhat over the past two decades.
0: So it doesn't have to do with public consciousness about uh, exonerations or changing attitudes about the death penalty so much as professionalization?
2: I, I think that's right. I, I, so, so I think that, that, there, that if you're saying, um, why is it that juries are returning fewer death verdicts, I think it's because um, there are more cases in which they're presented with an adequate mitigation defense, number one. And number two, there's this growing public skepticism about the death penalty, which is reflected in poll findings that, like, you know, the public understands that the death penalty does not deter.
1: Well, to the extent that it's the first thing you mentioned, that suggests there's a healthy percentage of death sentences that and and might well have been carried out already um that merely by virtue of having been tried earlier rather than later resulted in a sentence of death that wouldn't have obtained
2: that's exactly the case and you know i have um that's exactly true um and uh that is the case with every single one of my clients who is now out of remedies to challenge their um convictions and sentences so their original
1: proceeding was some time ago
2: yeah yeah so you know um so uh, uh, there's a uh there's a case that that you might want to include in the in the show notes um it's from uh 2010 it's uh it's a marcel uh, the, the case is marcel williams and justices ginsburg and Sotomayor um, dissented from um, dissented from the denial of the cert petition because he was tried in nineteen ninety seven or ninety eight this guy's lawyers um, never talked to any of his family members, never talked to any of his friends, never collected any of his mental health records, never collected any of his medical records, never had him evaluated by a uh, by a psychologist um, and all they presented. Is uh, at the penalty phase. This was their mitigation defense. Um, they presented one witness who uh, said, "Look, I've got life without parole, and life without parole is worse than death. So if you want to punish him the worst, sentence him to life without parole." Whereas the guys who are not being sentenced to death now, the only reason they're not being sentenced to death is because they get a fully uh, a fully fledged mitigation defense. Some of the time, some people do. Um, that the American Bar Association guidelines require.
1: Now, I wouldn't think skepticism about the sentence itself would explain much at the granular level of jurors having been death qualified before they are impaneled, right? The jurors are asked whether they're prepared to uh, visit that sentence on somebody. And if they say no, there are no circumstances under which I would vote to give someone the death penalty, they're excused from service, right? The jurors are death qualified. Yeah, it's one, one of the sources of
0: bias, right? So all all death penalty juries are That's skewed towards people, who, yeah, yeah <laughs> which
1: is yeah. why I don't think we, we could attribute very much in the decline of giving death sentences to public opinion having turned against the death penalty.
2: Yeah, you know the the only thing I, the, the the only thing that I that I might have to say about that is um, that that uh, you know for, first of all it, it it's horrible because these juries are organized with the bias toward death. Um, however, um, uh, the stand, the standard of whether you can serve on a capital jury is really subtle. And I think that you guys, I think that you guys hit on it, um, and, uh, uh, that that you guys accurately stated the standard, you can be, um, morally opposed to the death penalty and think that no one should ever be given the death sentence. That you know the death penalty is um, a moral outrage, and so long as you um, can follow the judge's instructions and apply the law in your role as a juror, you can sit on the jury. And in fact, the Constitution re- requires that you be allowed to sit on the jury.
0: But it's interesting, though, right? Because the uh, the par- part of the the second phase, you know, and we've alluded to—I don't know if we said it explicitly—but um, most of our listeners probably know, and it most, you know, that uh, death penalty trials occur in two phases. You first determine guilt, and then you determine uh, uh, whether they, uh, whether the defendant lives or dies. And in that second phase, at which the evidence of aggravation and um, mitigation. Uh, mitigation comes in, uh, there the jurors are asked to make a morally laden decision about desert, right, about whether the person deserves to die in light of the mitigating evidence and the what the one thing the court has done the supreme court has done about this phase i think is to remove uh from the state's power the ability to constrain that moral inquiry right you've got to let the defendant put on a lot of stuff right to uh to show why he or she does not deserve the death penalty Um, and so there is some tension here right because if if i say i'm morally outraged by the death penalty. I think it's an abomination and it should never be applied, but I'm willing to listen to the judge's instructions while those instructions give me quite a bit of, of moral, uh, room to work in at the penalty phase. Don't they, Josh?
2: They do. They do. And, and, um, so, you know, let, let's, let's imagine somebody who is being, who is being perfectly honest, because I think that there are cases where, um, where jurors lie to get on a jury because they are biased and want to make sure the guy gets the death penalty um and um there's also uh, a movement particularly in african-american churches to um to teach um prospective jurors what not to say to get thrown off the jury um but let Hmm. you know that this that this person you know doesn't have any exposure to uh to to that sort of strategic um type thinking and what they say is I really don't believe in the death penalty um i I think it, it's wrong as a matter of social policy um but if the judge instructs me to consider it I'll seriously consider it when that person gets back to the jury room I think it's perfectly valid for them to say um he shouldn't like I've considered it, I've thought long and hard about it, and, um, you know, even though this crime was horrible and the state has proven an aggravating factor, I think the death penalty is wrong, and therefore I'm uh, voting for a life sentence. I, d- I think that that not only can happen, but is not, strictly speaking, any form of nullification.
0: Can we turn to Glossop for a second? Um... I, you know, I had you on the show because you wrote these three very interesting pieces about about this case, what it says about Kennedy um, and and, um, uh, and 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 what the future of the death penalty is af- after gloss up again, the, the case we mentioned uh, toward the beginning of the show. Uh, and I just wanted to start by uh, pointing out like what, what I think is Alito's the, the core move in Alito's opinion and kind of get your reaction to it, because there's a little bit of a surprising wrinkle here. And so what people have talked about it and they've ridicule the logic of this but let me it's this line he has that says our decision in this er air our our decisions in this area have been animated in part by the recognition that because it is settled that capital punishment is constitutional it necessarily follows that there must be a constitutional means of carrying it out right and so the reasons to think that the constitution permits a death penalty has a number of places explicitly in the constitution where the death penalty is assumed, right? So you can't deprive someone of life, liberty, or property, namely life, right, without due process of law. So right. it that, must that be possible. sounds like
1: you do get to deprive someone of their life under certain circumstances. Right. And,
0: and and there are phrases in the Constitution about capital crimes. So there's an understanding that uh, that executions can happen. On the other hand, we have the um, uh, the cruel and unusual punishment clause, forbidding cruel and unusual punishments. And the 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 claim here is that. That uh, it's very much uh, like it has some superficial resemblance to the argument I made in King versus Burwell. Right. This is the argument I made on the show about this anti the anti nihilist reason to uphold uh, Obamacare in that case. Right. So you remember the argument was that um, uh, we should interpret these words to mean exactly what they say established by the state. Right. Even if to do so would wreck the rest of the statute. And I said that's a nihilistic form of textualism, right? That it interprets a few words in part of the statute to work a suicide on the rest of the statute, right? And that that is not what the court should be doing, right? Is as, as you've said before, Joe, is faithful agents of of Congress when it comes to statutes in a non-constitutional case, et cetera. Um, so I, I I refer to that as kind of nihilism. If we interpreted the cruel and unusual punishment clause uh, to forbid capital punishment, would it Similarly, be a nihilistic form of interpretation? Would it not kind of, uh, um, if not work a suicide, at least uh, you know abrogate something else the Constitution clearly intended to permit? Uh, at least if there's due process, um, you see what I'm saying.
2: I do. I see exactly what you're saying, I, and I, I, you know, um, I I am not a I am not a, a logician, but. <laughs> but I, I actually think that, um, and it's, it's Scalia, Scalia's concurrence in Glossop, um, who makes this, uh, uh, which makes this syllogism explicitly, um, which is like, you know, the constitution says, um, uh, no death penalty without due process of law. And, uh, that means that, There can be a death penalty if there is due process of law.
0: Yeah, and let me just break it. Let me just break in. He says, mind you, not once in the history of the American Republic has this court ever suggested the death penalty is categorically impermissible. The reason is obvious, colon. It is impossible to hold unconstitutional that which the Constitution explicitly contemplates.
2: Um, So I guess the thing is, is that um, is that Justice Scalia's um, reading I think is wrong as a formal, logical matter. And if accepted, would basically require um, overruling um, uh, 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 all jurisprudence on the Bill of Rights for like the last 80 years. Because you could say the same thing. uh, So I don't think it follows as a logical matter that um, uh, or if you don't have A, then you can't have B that if you do have A, then you can have B.
0: Well, it follows in the following sense. So, so if you think that cruel and unusual punishment is there as shorthand, for a longer list of punishments or a category of punishments, right? Essentially it was maybe the drafters were a little bit lazy. They could have written a a longer document, including explicit references. Uh, So if you think though, that the list of punishments or at least the categories of punishments, which are not allowed were fixed at the time those words were written, right? Uh, Then a, a, a break on your interpretation of that provision ought to be right. That it, uh, that your reading would rule out punishments which are clearly contemplated by the Constitution. In other words, if we're trying to recover what that list of punishments is, which is hidden behind the words cruel and unusual punishment, the fact that the Constitution contemplates uh, the death penalty is good evidence that the death penalty per se is not among those, that, that list of punishments which is lazily hidden behind the words cruel and unusual punishment.
2: Except for the fact that to accept Justice uh, Scalia's uh reading of the Eighth Amendment would uh would require overruling sixty or seventy years of Eighth Amendment precedent, which he himself acknowledges.
0: Yeah, no question, no question. Yeah, that's yeah. Right.
1: Well, you know, once you take the turn and trope against Dallas to say that this is an evolving standard, um, then I think the, the the notion that the cruel and unusual punishment prohibition could, after a a point in time, uh, render capital punishment uh, unavailable.
2: There's even more fundamental thing that the the exact logic that Justice Scalia uses um, um, would also render indefensible Obergefell, uh, would also render indefensible Roe
1: versus Wade, yeah, but of course, they oppose all these opinions, right Of course, of course it's not surprising that um, black, a, a black. manner of reasoning that he finds atrocious uh, leads to all these problems, right. In fact, he would say that's an argument in his favor. well, that see this is this is the question right this this is this is I think part of the question. Is the position
0: taken here, which sounds like a tautology, right, um, is this position consistent with a theory of the Constitution? That produces disagreement in all these other cases so that we can say at bottom, there is no, um, there is no argument from purely from legitimacy here. Instead, what we have is a basic political disagreement. And so what should control is the numbers on the court. Um, or can we say that there's some mistake here? You know what I mean? Like, is there some mistake with this reasoning that Scalia and Alito and Thomas, uh, I don't, the chief didn't write. Can I
1: use this a less loaded? So, so let's take it uh, just for a sec let's take it away from the capital contact capital sentence context and talk about um, a, a sort of uh, talk about the following okay so in the in the impeachment provisions uh, relevant to the President of the United States it makes clear that when the Senate is deciding whether to convict um, that they can prohibit the president from holding other future offices and Benefits under the United States et cetera et cetera right yeah um and if a if a president who were impeached were to argue that that a Senate who did that uh was engaging in cruel and unusual punishment right um, and you've got so you've got the textual explicit recognition in one part of the Constitution that the Senate can impose that right punishment and over here in the 8th amendment it says no cruel and unusual punishments what do what, what do we how should we think about it in that context well I, I, put aside I, that it's not a crime and i get it don't make that argument right i mean well
3: Just, I,
0: I, I think there's a difference between the way the constitution refers to good ca- the capital and that, that difference is that in the in the case of impeachment the constitution is a source of power to an institution to do a particular thing Right, okay. it, it it tells that institution to do a particular thing, and the legitimacy of doing that thing comes directly from the Constitution. That that institution doing that thing can point to the Constitution and says, "Yeah, here's what I'm supposed to do." Whereas uh, the language about uh, life taking in the Constitution and capital crimes is indicative of of a of a privilege vis-a-vis the federal government to engage in life taking, right? That comes from somewhere else, right? It, it doesn't. There's no it, it doesn't, there's no grant of authority to the States as there couldn't be for all kinds of reasons sounding in federalism, you know, that, right. you know, the residual power was in the States, right? Nothing, which was uh, nothing, which was not explicitly claimed was not, was taken from the States. Right. So, but, but there's nothing in the constitution that gives that authority, right? In, instead, it just recognizes that, uh that there, that there is at that time a privilege to do these things, right?
1: Uh. <laughs> I look at that privilege or, or the recognition and shows they have to be done in a in a certain way only or not at all. Right.
0: And and you know the quite so the recognition of that privilege is a very different so it would be more like king versus burwell if the constitution said the state shall have the power to uh uh to um uh, uh to kill people right? Yeah, yeah it, it, I that would that would be different. Go ahead Josh, yeah.
2: It's critically it's critically important to me at least it's it's critically important that that's not what the 5th and 14th amendments say because again I, I i go back to my like um that they seem to think that the um the if not a then not b um thing that the constitution does say logically entails if a then b and that's just fallacious now i i understand your broader point that the fact that the Constitution talks about it shows that they contemplate it, but I think you know um, it's a Constitution we're expounding.
3: You know, <laughs> we're not.
2: Uh, we're, we're not. Uh, I, I think that that there are very few defenders of like sort of um framer intent originalism anymore i mean is that right Mm, uh, well i
0: mean you know i i think the
2: original application originalism. this
0: is something something we've got we have not had our originalism show yet with uh with some of the new originalists which would be fascinating to have but i would say that um uh you know a dominant form of originalism which is accepted by many is is more of the kind of public meaning originalism uh, you know, that it's what it would have meant to the people at the time, because that has a right, th- that form of interpretation has a connection with a theory of democracy, right? And a theory of, uh, 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 of the people as a, as the source of authority. Um, and, and so that, you know, what did, so an originalist view of the cruel and unusual punishment clause would be, you know, at the time the constitution was adopted, what would, reasonable citizens have thought was intended by the framers? Or what would reasonable citizens have thought that that text meant to be more textualist about it?
2: I think this brings us back to Glossop um, in the sense that um, uh, five members of the court are not originalists in the sense that Scalia, um, that Scalia and Thomas certainly are that Alito may be, and that Roberts may be. So l- let me go back real quick. You you mentioned that the key move in Alito's opinion, which you rightly ridiculed. Um, I think it was you. Um, last, <laughs> the, the, me, episode. me,
0: Christian. Yeah, was it me? Yeah. I don't know. Yeah, maybe. Yeah.
2: yeah. Um, that because capital punishment is constitutional, there has to be a constitutional means of carrying it out. Right. So right. the 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 um, the the premise. That capital punishment is constitutional is like a critical premise to the opinion, right? But what's interesting about it, and what really you know got my neurons firing, um, is that Justice Breyer vigorously attacks that key premise, and and Alito does not really defend it. He leaves it. Uh, Alito doesn't defend a key premise against his argument a key premise of his argument against an epic attack. And why is it that he doesn't defend it? Um, My theory is that um, it's because Justice Kennedy doesn't agree with the premise and Mm -hmm. he's waiting for the right moment. He's just, you know, he's as a good Burkean, he's he's waiting for the right moment. But, you know, to the extent that this premise um, is true, he certainly doesn't want to entrench it any further and that's why um uh that's why it was left to Scalia and Thomas in concurring opinions which Kennedy pointedly declined to join um to defend a like uh, you know the key premise on which the entire opinion hangs
1: you know you may be you may be right about that i your 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 piece about this on case text was i, I thought was quite interesting and and, uh, and quite persuasive. Uh, and so you might be right about that. My beef with this uh, statement of Alito's is actually a little bit different. And it is um, that it doesn't get you anywhere even in, in this case, even if it's right. So if I grant you uh, that uh, for sake of argument, uh, capital punishment uh, does not violate the Constitution per se, and I then further grant you that that means there has to be a constitutionally permissible way to carry it out, That doesn't mean the objected to procedure in this very case is that constitutionally permissible procedure. Exactly. It it may be, it may not be, right? We'd have to actually look at the procedure, get the facts right, uh, and figure out is it or isn't it permissible. Uh,
3: uh,
2: Justice Sotomayor is the one who gets the facts right.
0: Well, I mean, it's a matter of presumptions, right? I mean, for for Alito and the others, it's like it falls on on the prisoner to prove to an exacting standard. Uh, that, that, that this will involve an intolerable risk of pain and, uh, and suffering and that there's a, there's a lesser means available because he he bites the bullet and says, look, you know, uh, it, it may be that this is extremely painful, but if there's not something less painful, you can go ahead and do it. Uh, so long as that wasn't your intention, which would be more like torture. Um, a lot of us would like to die without pain, but you know. Tough luck. Go figure. We Well, can't it's all... just
1: it, it's why this argument about, you know, the Constitution says it's OK. Therefore, there has to be a constitutionally permissible way to do it. It just seems to me it's just a singularly unimpressive thing to say in this context, because the whole case is going to turn taking the presumptions, of course. Right. Who, who are we going to demand proof from? Where will the risk of non persuasion lie? Of course, that's can be incredibly significant. And therefore, that's the thing in the case to talk about. That's meaningful, right? Uh, Because what it's going to turn on is whether or not this is a permissible method according to the relevant standard. What that, I mean, you you
0: can see what, I mean, uh, from Alito's perspective, what's going on here, of course, right, is that there is is a large group of people out there, uh, and those people all want to uh, do away with the death penalty. And it's people like Josh who are case by case objecting to methods, chipping away at it here, chipping away at it there. And if a line of cases is established that evaluates executions by the possibility of pain, and if you put the burden on the government to produce evidence of the unknowable, because it's oftentimes hard to ask people after you've executed them how yep. painful it was, right? And then, you know, you have to, you have to infer it, and, yep. and if the standard is high enough, it can be impossible to do, And but you also kind of cut out the old forms of punishment, electric chair, gas chamber, right. hanging, uh, and
1: firing squad, then... We're whittling away. Yeah, right? and this is the genesis of his, I think, grossly intemperate uh, uh, tone and questions at oral argument, uh, referring to such people as guerrilla warriors um, and other. I, I just think you know, unbecoming of of his office.
2: As if, um as, as if litigation that that often wins and protests are uh, are illegitimate. And then, you know, also, as if, you know, they say that, oh, you know, these abolitionist terrorists, which, you know, there's never there's there's never been any abolitionist terrorism or harassment that I've ever heard of, have forced these corporations to stop selling these drugs to prisons. Well, you know, what's really gone on is uh there's this public move against the way from the death penalty and these corporations don't want to be associated with it.
0: Yeah. It was, it was, that was a strange passage where it wasn't just a corporation refused. I mean, he didn't leave it there. He said there was an outcry from the, uh, uh, rabble rousers against the death penalty and the corporation responded by not doing it. You know, in other words, there's, it, it really, you know, it's another layer. It's almost a meta layer of good and evil in this debate, right, of people right. who are acting legitimately and and illegitimately. But can I can I ask you guys about another thing? I, I just highlighted a couple of things in this opinion to, to chat about, and and here's one of them. Um, it's, it's part of Scalia's opinion where he's going on about not presuming to uh, um, to tell parents whose lives have been forever altered by the brutal murder of a child that life imprisonment is punishment enough. Uh, and, and then he goes into this... Uh, Reaction against the kind of anti deterrence rationale, right, where Breyer doubts very much that it has a deterrent effect looking at, you know, kind of all things considered looking at the literature. And Scalia writes this, and this is a matter again of, of tone and what the justice is. It's the kind of thing I talked about with Dahlia on the show, uh, on, on her show last week. Uh, so what, what did you think of this? So he says, but we federal judges live in a world apart from the vast majority of Americans. After work, we retire to homes in placid suburbia or to high-rise co-ops with guards at the door. We're not confronted with the threat of violence that's ever present in many Americans' everyday lives. Uh, Query about that, but uh, the suggestion that the Incremental deterrent effect of capital punishment does not seem, quote, significant, reflects, it seems to me. uh, Let them eat cake obliviousness to the needs of others. Let the people decide how much incremental deterrence is appropriate. Now, I ask, does he realize he's writing that to Justice Breyer, who was violently attacked in the Caribbean not too long ago?
2: Yeah, that's that's a very interesting point. I had not thought about that.
0: And, and you know, and Justice Souter's not on the court anymore. But Justice Souter famously was was attacked um, apparently randomly while I think jogging in in D.C. Uh, it this is like it you know
1: I don't think that was the first time Breyer was physically accosted either. Since, I don't. Th- I think
0: there was another time yeah, as well. Yeah, there was another incident. But this was a particularly brutal one that I think yeah. cost him some injury. And yeah. it, it just. Um, What's interesting to me – so – and then he accuses Breyer of like because he's not letting the people decide these moral questions of like being somehow against the Enlightenment, um, which seems to have been calculated to wound Breyer in particular I think. Mm. But um, I I thought that was like just weird that you would – so you've got a colleague who was the victim of a violent crime not too long ago and you write a line like this, like your attitude must reflect your – the fact that you're removed from – from the problems of violence. I, I,
2: it, Did you see the piece in the um, I can't remember whether it was uh, on verdict or on the Atlantic. I think it was verdict. Um, that's the, 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 you know, the, uh, the clickbait headline was justice Scalia should re- really seriously consider retiring that ba- basically, you know, there's a subtext that, um, there's a subtext that maybe you know he's lost more than a few steps
0: yeah i I've seen that and and uh I think there was something by Eric Siegel to that effect uh he's a that's the one I'm a professor uh, at georgia state um i don't think I go along with that uh i it's hard to know i mean uh, you know i I was very reluctant in talking to Dahlia to make any kind of like I, I don't have any special insight to the motivations of the justices, or or their state of mental health, or whether they're getting along or not. It just this this case in particular, and and the dissents in Obergefell and in King versus Burwell, uh, seem to go a step further than in the past in in terms of disagreeing with one another. And this is the kind of thing, and you and you see it from Justice Breyer, which I think is unusual. Uh, I just noted a few times going through the, his uh, his dissent. In um, parentheses, and just to give you one example, he was he was citing a a bunch of cases about the problem of or a a bunch of writing. And I don't remember what the all the citations were about the problem of irreversibility and the death penalty. Mm -hmm. And then he says, but see anti two to three. This is Scalia, Scalia, J, comma, concurring. This is this very opinion. And then here's the parenthetical. Apparently finding no special constitutional problem arising from the fact that the execution of an innocent person is irreversible.
1: Apparently, I, I love all of it. Like the, the fact that he uses the word apparently. Apparently, <laughs>
0: yes. I mean, and there's another one like that, which is.
1: Uh, I
2: mean, here's what I think is going on. Yeah, uh, and you know, there, there there are some people in my office who you know think that uh, I'm a hypomanic uh, crazy person, um, <laughs> but but uh, I think that that we're in the midst of you know a social revolution akin to what happened in the 1960s. Yeah. I mean think about it. We've got um we've had uh gay marriage, uh the Confederate flags and Confederate uh monuments are coming down. We've got a giant new welfare program. We're probably going to elect the first woman president. Um we are legalizing marijuana. Um and uh I mean Everyone is watching soccer, for God's sake.
1: Um, so, <laughs> I love you know, how you question- saved that one for last. <laughs>
0: you, 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 th- <laughs> you, you threw that in there as a longtime listener, knowing that I'm an Arsenal fan, I think. <laughs>
2: uh, so, yeah, that's, that's right. Uh, so the, the question is, uh, so, and the question that, that, that I think mm-hmm. about is, does this social revolution something that, you know, Bruce Ackerman might call a constitutional moment? Um, does it extend to the death penalty? Um, I think that the justices are uh, losing their ability to uh, work with each other with collegiality because they all recognize that we're, we're in a constitutional moment and they all recognize that the stakes are incredibly high.
0: Well, it is it is a moment where on a number of issues, the basic question of of looking at our, our our fellow citizens as people and endeavoring to be decent to them and to uh, I- embracing the fact that we are just other people's lives can be unknowable and therefore should be somewhat respected is kind of yeah, I mean, I'm painting broadly here, but that, that we should try to be decent towards one another, which means to help people out in in these very difficult lives that we all lead. And we're seeing that happen in a number of in a number of areas. And the question in the law is to what extent should courts be used to kind of consolidate those movements towards decency in this kind of in this patchwork republic that we have? You know? and,
2: and, and to me, to me, Obergefell answers that question. It answers that question for gay rights, and should answer that question for the death penalty.
0: Well, I think it's—I I tend to agree with you. I mean, let's uh, to, to be uh, practical here. You know, I've, I've taken a lot of ridicule from several of my colleagues. I'm, I'm not necessarily looking at anyone in this room, but uh, when <laughs> I, 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 I am pretty—I am—I I won't say convinced, but if I had to guess, I would say that uh, there will be no death penalty in three years' time.
2: Really. That's, that- that's my prediction as well. I think, I think there will be no no death penalty in three years time, and and, um, and uh, you know I I, I would even, I could even I could even venture a guess as to what's going to be the United States versus Windsor of the death penalty. So I think you know Breyer's dissent is the Lawrence of the death penalty, but you know life life speeds up, and we're in the midst of a social revolution. So there's not going to be ten years between. Mm. Um, but, but between, uh, the death penalties, Lawrence and the death penalties, Windsor. Um, but, uh, w- what the death penalties Windsor is going to be is, uh, somebody like me or the, um, the, uh, uh, hundreds of other people who are smarter than I am, who are doing this work all across the country is going to bring, um, some, uh, some claim in the lower courts that the death penalty is categorically unconstitutional. A court of appeals is going to deny that claim on a procedural ground that, um, that like, you know, this is an impermissible second or successive petition, that uh, this claim is procedurally barred, that this claim is past the statute of limitations, um, that that claim will be denied on a procedural ground. Um, that the supreme court will grant cert and say hey you know we're um we're not taking a position or justice kennedy will say i'm not taking a position one way or the other on the constitutional of capital punishment as a general matter um but the lower court got this procedural issue wrong uh and it needs to uh reevaluate this claim on the merits
0: hmm. so the the legal posture of, of the vehicle that's something i have not really thought a lot about i've been thinking a little bit more about the social conditions over the next three years that might make Kennedy more comfortable embracing this. And I, I do encourage – we'll have all your your uh, pieces in the show notes and, and I think all three of those case text pieces you wrote are really wonderful. And uh, the, the one about the three sides of Kennedy that chart out his kind of federalism, uh, Obergefell, and what was the, the third one? Um,
2: Libertarianism
0: yeah Burkeanism and 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 dignity uh were were the three and then you you located like where his federalism side where his De side and what right. was the other one The diagram was great the, the diagram is awesome so it's a Venn diagram I think everybody who listens to the show would would love to check it, check it out Uh so so what are the social conditions which will push him in, in another direction or would Otherwise, you know, kind of shake things up if there's a new justice appointed, and and the court will embrace this idea. And you know, is there going to be something like the documentary Blackfish? Remember about the killer whales at sea yeah. at SeaWorld, and or which will be about maybe Cameron Todd Willingham, or maybe or or maybe the um, uh, the guy that Justice Kennedy, the uh, Justice Scalia, wrote about, who turned out to be innocent. Um, Will there be something compelling like that about uh, about either someone who's been exonerated? I mean, there have been some of these, or will we actually learn more about actual and actually innocent people who have been executed? executed? Will it be that, or will it be documentaries about people who are clearly mentally disabled, where you where where you know through art, which is a key way of doing this, you? Appreciate both their monstrosity and their humanity, and the sense in which they are pitiful, right? Yeah. And you say, "Look, this is the, the viewer is left in this quandary of dealing with a real case, and concludes, you know, we're going down the wrong down the wrong road here." And more people embrace the idea that we should kind of join the rest of the civilized world and. And reject is is that so you get a little bit of that kind of like cultural movement over the next few years. And my I I think Kennedy signaled he wants a case on solitary confinement. Um, There will be. I I don't know. Joe, you were one of the ones I think who at least at this dinner we had back when, when Dolly was in town and and people told me I was crazy and this would be a 20 year thing rather than a three year thing. Are you in that camp or are you unsure or what? Uh,
1: I'm not sure you and Josh may be right. Uh, I'm, I'm less sure of that. What I'm, what I'm quite sure of is that if uh, there is a confirmation process for a new justice before the case you guys are describing has happened, uh, this question will be a major focus of the confirmation hearings, mm. B- because it's at least that clear, right? It's at least clear enough that this is something, because of Justice Breyer and, and Ginsburg and their uh, dissent gloss up, they've now fully teed this up. Uh, it, that's now going to be the stuff of the confirmation battle, if, if it takes place before the case itself has been decided. And in whose interests will this be to make this a big issue? Will it be a- Everyone's. Because be, be, people who want to ensure that the death penalty is uh, uh, declared unconstitutional will, will, will want to make sure that they're looking at a justice who will do it. I, do you think so? Because and the people who don't want it will, will make sure they're looking at a justice who won't.
2: Uh, have you, either of you read um, uh, uh, Doug Berman's uh, sentencing law and policy blog? I think he's a, a prophet Ohio State.
0: Yeah, he's been on the show. We had him on to talk about um, marijuana marijuana law, law early oh, right. okay. early in the run of the show. Yeah, you
2: no know, he he had a post um, he had a post not too long ago, maybe two or three days ago. Um, you know, Nebraska repealed the death penalty maybe two months ago. Yep,
1: over, over the governor's veto, I think.
2: Right, right, and now there's a, a there's there's a a, a campaign to um, to repeal the repeal by. Uh, Voter Initiative. Right. Hmm. And um, the um, Professor Berman's post um, pointed out that the abolitionists um, have raised tons more money than the retentionists. So it seems like to me that it's one of those issues where um, there's more fire in the belly on the abolitionist side than there is on the retentionist side on Hmm.
0: average. It does seem like a social moment. I don't know if I, I'd have to think more about whether I think this is a constitutional moment. I, I'm not. If anything, you know, you might be able to describe this as kind of a, a confluence of the modern civil rights movement and um, the. Um, I don't know the reaction to the brutality of the war on terror, early war on terror years, like all of that is kind of coming together to kind of force people to think about how we define ourselves as Americans. You know the um, the torture stuff, uh, uh, reactions to that. I, you know I don't. I, this is something I want to think a lot more about, um, but it, it won't stop me from kind of just shooting off some some random thoughts here on the show, I guess. But I, I, it's an interesting idea, um, but there is certainly a sense of progress right i mean uh, among among progressives uh, there, there does I, I seem def- to be that
2: i definitely have a sense that i'm like in a certain sense living through history
0: yeah but you know do, do people always have that though
2: i yeah. i don't think that i had that i mean during you know dur- during the clinton years and uh you know um well i'll t- i'll say this I did not have that sense before uh, September 11th, 2001. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I think since then, I've, I have felt like I'm living in history, but before then, you know, the Clinton years and maybe the first year of the Bush administration, uh, you know, it, it, it felt like nothing happened.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That, that was still the time. I remember it well in, where people were saying that Alan Greenspan was the real president. It didn't matter who the president was. In other words, it, the polis, right, doesn't matter. It's the, it's the kind of capitalist structure that matters more um, because all this prosperity seemed to have come from, from nowhere, right? And so it doesn't matter who the political leaders are. And that changed dramatically after September 11th. But I we're not going to get all this solved today, are we? <laughs> I don't think so. Do we, I, I feel like there's so much more I wanted to talk to you about, Josh.
2: I have a couple of, I mean, I have a couple of questions for you guys.
0: Oh, now that's, that's turnabout. Now, before we get to that, though, do do you want to uh, insert into the program stream here a disclaimer about how nothing you say should be attributed to anybody except for maybe yourself? And even then, maybe you want to disclaim it.
2: Right, Uh, that, that, uh, that this is, this is solely me talking and, uh, you know, I'm not speaking on behalf of the. of the Federal Public Defender's office, or on behalf of, of any of my clients, you know the the, the the only other thing that that I wanted to affirmatively mention is uh, that you guys ought to check out this new site case text, if you haven't, because' it's, they, they've got something very interesting going on there, and Christian, I understand that you're the tech guy. <laughs> and, and I think that if you if you play around on it for a little while. I think you're going to be blown away.
0: Yeah, this is. I I only started looking at it and haven't really gotten into it. But we've done shows in the past about the future of writing and researching in law, and we're very interested in these. And I'm not sure what the listener feedback is on that. I don't know if I think we have some people who love it when we geek out about um, some people like, who really like don't word processors and, and <laughs> right. markdown and other people who well, who yeah, really
2: I was I wasn't thinking for the show. Yeah. I was thinking that you know um, uh, you, you guys ought to get around uh, get on it. Uh, play around with it, um, write something, and uh, you write something. Have, have you ever written on Medium?
0: I, I, I did try it. I, I took one of my blog posts and I put it on Medium just to try it yeah. out. Yeah.
2: Well, it works a lot like that in the sense that it's very intuitive. And then you write something, uh, people people upvote it, um, people can comment on what you write, and then the, the folks at Case Text, I mean, particularly if you're a law professor, um you know, they will promote it
3: hmm.
2: um promote it to everyone, so that 's why it 's good to write on um you know uh, uh because it's it 's easy to do. you can toss it off like a blog post, even though even if you don 't have your own blog, and then you know you've got uh you 've got a free team of people who are trying to get other people to read and be influenced by your ideas hmm. okay. Um, what is, uh, what is Breyer's and Ginsburg's strategy?
0: Oof. Uh, you know, this is again, this is again, trying to get in the minds of other people. And, uh, I, I, I do think that, you know, there, there's no reason to, to write that opinion unless, um, un, unless you feel confident in signaling, but, you know, and, and Breyer is not one to, um, and neither is Ginsburg just to, do that for no reason on the other hand you know it's kind of like I feel like right now I do feel like the whole issue is just super depressing um, and and so maybe you get this is Oren Kerr's point that we talked about a little bit last week maybe you get just super depressed with this stuff and you're just like I'm done with this and, and uh, so this opinion does I, I actually think though it, it, it does seem to me to be strategic and it seems to me to be uh, to express a certain confidence about pulling Kennedy over within a few years.
1: The only thing I would add to that is that you can, even without being depressed or thinking it's depressing, um, and even without thinking, you know, maybe we can get Anthony Kennedy. um, They've both been on the court for more than 20 years. Yeah. Uh, They're not getting any younger. Yeah. Uh, And if their experience of all of this that they have done for all these years is uh, Justice Blackman, like um, I'm done tinkering with the machinery of death. Right. If if that's how they feel, if that's the conclusion they've reached. It's not but that's it's, not
2: that's not what their opinion says.
1: I know. But but they what they've said is it looks like this to us, uh, that it's unconstitutional per se. We think we should get a case about that. Really, really consider that question. Right. I mean, if 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 that's where they are, um, you know, no time like the present. I mean, you might as well just say it. Right. I well, mean, even if you didn't think you could persuade Anthony Kennedy, your your you're, your obligation to the institution is to do the best you can to say that which you think to be true and that which you think I, to I be agree. correct. Yeah.
2: The other theory that I have is that maybe he knows something about a retirement that we don't.
1: Yeah, maybe. I don't think they talk to each other that much, honestly, about yeah. that kind of thing. Yeah, I don't.
2: Oh the last The last question i've got is 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 doctrinal and less like trying to get inside the minds of the justices well it it should be doctrinal but um <laughs> I, um justice kennedy in in um in his most significant death penalty opinions, which are the hall case about intellectual disability and the Kennedy case that bans the death penalty for child rape, he talks a lot about you know death penalty, at least in certain cases, infringing on innate human dignity or something like that. And I'm just, I, I honestly, uh, you know, I, I'm obviously um, opposed to the death penalty for all the reasons that Justice Breyer will listen his dissent. But I'm not sure what Justice Kennedy means.
0: I, uh you know you wrote you wrote about the dignity version of kennedy in in your in your piece and um this the, uh, this seems to me to express like he's not in the camp that sees uh people that sees even div- even uh convict- convicts in capital cases as uh as monsters and nothing else right i mean part of the Part of the dignity line of Kennedy cases and, and you, you could a number of cases involving uh, immigrants and involving uh, uh, gays and lesbians and and in death penalty cases is that the people are more complicated than individual things about them. Right. And and there's this unknowable part of people that is should be inviolable by the by the state. Um, yeah. And, and so that's you know, I think that. It's the death penalty represents kind of the hardest case for Kennedy because the Constitution does appear to have in mind that it could be done uh, explicitly, and two, you know, these are people who have committed, um, if 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 they're factually innocent, uh, have have committed crimes that are the ultimate in taking away the dignity of others. Uh, so that probably makes it somewhat difficult for him yeah. but that's what i see i see these cases as re- as being a more complex recognition of the qualities of the human mind than the simple and
2: i think that that's right that you know he's saying these people retain their dignity as people and not as you know other as monster they're not you know they're not uh, they're not just monsters but at you know as with most kennedy opinions it would be nice if he actually said that
1: <laughs> you know i think another thing people uh, can and should explore and i and i suspect it may be something influencing him and his attachment to that word which also played a significant role uh, both at oral argument um and and uh, obergefell the decision and even prior decisions in the gay rights line of cases um, this word dignity um in european human rights law of course this is a central uh term legal term central concept so there's an enormous literature uh both um exploring criticizing justifying um uh, the notion of dignity as a human rights concept uh, so jeremy waldron uh christopher mccrudden um uh, so many people uh and and i think Kennedy who has certainly spent time in European law school settings over the years um has undoubtedly heard about this concept and and the way it's used in European human rights law uh he may be trying to create it in a US vernacular and it, so it's going to be different in some ways but but I think there's some overlap so I think that part of this is about a certain europeanization in of of anglo-american thinking about, um, about what it means to be a person uh, who the law is bound to respect as a, as a person and an end in and of oneself.
2: I, it sounds to me like some of these international law materials sort of fleshing out and justifying this concept of a right to dignity is something that people like me should be reading. Um, and I was wondering if you might include those in the show notes and maybe then I'll click on them a second time.
0: We'll see what we can do. We'll 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 deploy our crack research team, which which may mean our listeners, and they'll have to tell us next week. Stop calling me crack. (laughs) (laughs) Um, (laughs) All right, we got we got to forge ahead here. It's been great, not just you know having a listener like you who's you know doing you know great work out there and who found the show, you know, randomly, we we never would have met, but for the show. And this is one of the joys of doing it. So I I appreciate your uh, uh, correspondence over the over the months and and for agreeing to be on the show today. This has been great.
1: Yeah, thank you so much.
2: Uh, it's, It's been it's been an honor. Thanks for having me on.